yeah, my name's Jeff. It's good to meet you if we haven't met yet or if you're joining us online. And we are finishing up our series today. We've been on this, this track of the series called Home, focusing in on living in exile. How do, you, how do you find your home when you're in exile? And today's the last week. Next week starts Advent and a new series. I'm kind of excited for that new series. But I'm really excited about this morning as well. And we're going to hang with Peter this morning. Uh, if you're newer to Crossview or if you've been here for a while, hopefully you know or you learn that we're a church that takes discipleship really seriously. Uh, we actually believe that the words of Jesus are life and we want to do what he says. And Peter's a great friend on the journey. He's somebody who followed Jesus and he, he did it before us and he, he, he wrote about it, he talked about it, and, and we get to kind of realize, oh, our journeys look a lot like Peter's. He's a great friend on the journey. And so as we wrap up this series, I thought we would spend the morning with Peter, and we're going we're, we're to look a little bit of his story, but we're going to be in 1 Peter. And I've given you some overviews of books as we've gone through this part of the series. We looked at Jeremiah, a big book. I tried to kind of give you a summary in a week, and we did that with Ezekiel, a big book. I tried to give you a summary in a week. We'll do that with 1 Peter. It's a much smaller book, so I decided I'll just show you, and hopefully this will help. It'll, I, hope, I don't know that I have like point by point this morning, but it's all going to kind of flow together, I think. But I'm going to show you the video. Uh, it's an eight-minute video, but I think it's worth our time from the Bible Project. I've talked a bit about it. I love the resources. But we'll start with a video from the Bible Project on First Peter. That's what happened. Remember the early chapters of the book of Acts. Eventually, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel, however, and this letter was written decades into that mission in the wider Roman world. We discover at the conclusion of this letter that Peter is in Rome, which he calls Babylon, and we learn that while Peter commissioned the letter, it was actually composed by a man named Silvanus, who was a co-worker of Peter. This was a circular letter sent to multiple church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And this helps explain the letter's design and its main themes. It opens with a greeting, and then it moves into a poetic song of praise to God, which introduces the key themes that are explored in the main body of the letter, where he first affirms the new family identity of these persecuted Christians, which will help them see their suffering as a way to bear witness to Jesus. And this has a way of focusing their future hopes on the return of Jesus. Let's dive in. You'll just see how all the pieces work together. So Peter opens by greeting these churches as the chosen people of God who are exiled around the world. Now, Peter makes clear throughout the letter that these Christians he's writing to are Gentiles. But here he describes them with phrases from the Old Testament that describe how God chose the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, who was himself an exile and wanderer. This is a key strategy that Peter repeats through the whole letter. He wants these suffering non-Jewish Christians to see that through Jesus, they now belong to the family of Abraham. And so they're wandering exiles 
themselves just like him, misunderstood, they're mistreated, and they're looking for their true home in the promised land. Peter continues this idea in the opening song. He praises God for causing people to be born again into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection and the power of the Spirit. God's inviting all people into a new family centered around Jesus, a family that has a new identity as God's beloved children and who have a new hope of a world reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as king. And for people who have this hope, suffering and persecution is actually a strange gift because it burns away false hopes and distractions like a purifying fire, and it reminds us of our true home and hope. And so paradoxically, life's hardships actually deepen our faith. They make it more genuine. From here, Peter's going to move on into the body of the letter, but he's going to explore all these ideas in greater depth. So he first develops the theme about the new family identity of God's people. He takes even more memorable Old Testament images about the family of Israel, and then he applies them to these Gentile Christians. So like the Israelites who left Egypt, they too are to gird up their loins and leave behind their former way of life on the way to a new future. So they are the holy people of God now who are journeying through the wilderness. They are the people of the new Exodus who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who's the ultimate Passover lamb. They are the people of the new covenant who have God's word buried deep inside them, restoring their hearts and renewing their minds. They are the new temple built on the foundation of Jesus himself, and they're the new kingdom of priests who are serving God as his representatives to the nations. Now, by applying all of these amazing images to these persecuted Gentile Christians, Peter is placing their suffering within a brand new story. And this leads into the next section. Their persecution can actually help bring clarity to their mission in the world, to bear witness to God's mercy among the nations. So Peter first encourages them to submit to Roman rule, even if it's oppressive. Yes, he acknowledges their persecution, their suffering is unjust. But violent resistance solves nothing, not to mention that it betrays the teachings of Jesus who loved his enemies instead of killing them. Peter then specifically highlights the very difficult situation that Christian slaves and wives faced when they lived in Roman households where the patriarch did not follow Jesus. The problem was that it was expected that everyone in the household would submit to and worship the patriarch's gods. And so Peter's aware that giving allegiance to Jesus will generate suspicion. So Peter says it's true. All Christians, including Roman wives and slaves, have been fully liberated by Jesus. But they are to demonstrate that freedom, not through rebellion, but by resisting evil the same way Jesus did, through showing love and generosity to your enemies. And in homes where the husband is also a Christian, it's a different story. They are to treat their wives totally different from their Roman neighbors, regarding them as equals before God who are worthy of honor and respect. And Peter's hopeful that this imitation of Jesus' love and upside-down kingdom will give power to their words as they bear witness to God's mercy and show people the beautiful truth about the way of Jesus. But Peter's also a realist. He knows that Christians will continue to be persecuted, and so he reminds them of their future vindication. He recalls how Jesus himself was was unfairly persecuted and murdered by corrupt human powers. But in reality, he was dying for the sins of his enemies. And afterward, he was vindicated and given resurrection life by the Spirit. And now Jesus is exalted as king over all human and spiritual powers. 
Then Peter shows how baptism points to the vindication of Jesus' followers. So like Noah, they've been saved through the waters, not as a magic ritual, but as a sacred symbol that shows their change of heart, their desire to be joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And so now, even if they are murdered for following Jesus, their hope is in future vindication and exaltation alongside their king. Which leads Peter into the final movement. He recalls Jesus' words that his disciples should consider it an honor and joy to be persecuted just like he was. Peter then calls on church leaders to care for these suffering Christians and to show the same kind of servant leadership that Jesus did to his followers. And finally, Peter reminds these Christians about the real enemy that they are facing. This hostility isn't simply cultural or even political. There are dark forces of spiritual evil at work inspiring hatred and violence. And they are to resist this evil by staying faithful to Jesus and his teachings and by anticipating his return and ultimate victory over such evil. Peter concludes with a prayer for divine strength, and he sends a greeting from the church in Rome, which he calls Babylon. Now, this is cool. Peter's adopting here the tradition of the Old Testament prophets for whom the name Babylon became an archetype for any and every corrupt nation. And so Rome has become the new Babylon, and its empire is where God's people are now exiled from their true home in the renewed creation. Peter's first letter is a powerful reminder of Christian hope in the midst of suffering. God's people have been a misunderstood minority from the very beginning, and they should expect to face hostility because they've chosen to live under the rule of a different king, Jesus. However, persecution can become a strange gift to the church because it offers a chance to show others the surprising generosity and love of Jesus, which is fueled by the hope of his return. And that's what First Peter is all about. You like, and those are those are online, so you can. They do that for every book of the Bible, and we sometimes we talk about biblical theology. They do that for some biblical themes. So the Bible Project's a great resource. So they gave you an overview. I think you, maybe you can see why. How we're going to end this series? We jump to the New Testament, and we're going to look at Peter. So let's read some of these verses that were highlighted there. Uh, we'll start with First Peter chapter one, verse one. Again, it was highlighted in the video, but this is how it begins. Peter, an apostle, one sent by Jesus, one called and sent by Jesus, a leader in the church, to those who are elect, to those who are chosen, exiles, as was said in modern-day Turkey, we would say. Peter is writing to exiles, but this is different. We've been with Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, and, we've, and we looked at the prophets who were literally writing to the Jews who were removed from Jerusalem and forced to live in a foreign land. Peter is writing, but it's more, of a, it's more of what you would maybe call a spiritual exile, right? Because he's writing what was said to Gentiles who grew up in the Roman Empire. They've lived where they've always lived. But they've come to see that there's, no, Caesar isn't the true Lord, only Jesus is Lord. And so they've, they've, they've entered into a new kingdom. They've said, no, there's only one Lord, there's only one Savior, his name is Jesus. And so now they're no longer fully at home in the Roman Empire because they belong to the kingdom of God. This is a lot of what is happening when you and I get baptized. We become Christians, we, we give our life to Jesus, we receive his life, his forgiveness, his love, and we're baptized. And that baptism is this very important symbol, reality, experience that we are now a part of another kingdom and we serve a different king. And I think this is part of why this series has resonated with many of us. I've heard from many of you how much what we've talked about has, has helped you understand or explain or given you hope because you feel it, don't you? 
You are a spiritual exile in modern-day Babylon, in the land of your own nationality. You're no longer quite at home. Because the kingdom of God, we've talked about this, God is doing something the world's never seen before. And the kingdom of God operates with different values. If you're newer to church, just read Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Read the Beatitudes and see if the kingdom of Jesus doesn't operate with values you've never seen operated from before. It's different. So we're in exile. Well, We'll jump to chapter 5, verse 13. You saw it alluded to there in the video as well. But this is what Peter says. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise also chosen, sends your greetings. And so does Mark, my son. It's kind of funny when you get into scholarship, some people are like, is Peter talking about his wife? She's in Babylon and his son, Mark. No, you saw in the video. That's not what he's talking about. Peter is closing this letter with a cryptic line about she who is in Babylon. He's talking about the church. He's not talking about some woman in Babylon. Babylon was a small, insignificant, nearly abandoned city in the desert in the first century. Peter's in Rome, and he says, the church in Rome is sending you greetings. But the church in Rome is experiencing what it means to be in a spiritual Babylon. Rome is the latest iteration of idolatrous empire. We've tried to talk about this in the series, but the Bible maintains a sustained critique of empire, beginning in Genesis, really with the Tower of Babel, and moving all the way to Revelation. You will find Babylon in Revelation. There's this critique of empire, this critique of of these these nations, these empires who, who claim the right to shape history according to their own agenda. And there's a call from the prophets again and again. No, 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 no. Come out. Don't be Babylonian. Be the people of God. Live out your true identity. And the greatest confrontation, I've talked about this, but the greatest confrontation with the spirit of Babylon in the Bible is Psalm chapter 2. Read Psalm chapter 2. God almost, God, God laughs from heaven in a sense at these nations who are trying to set their own agenda over history, trying, trying to, to have extreme authority and power over all of history, claiming it as their right. God laughs because, no, 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 that right is reserved for my son. That's what Psalm 2 says. You're trying to take for yourself what is only reserved for my son. My son is, alone is the one who has authority and sovereignty. He's the only true Lord. He's the only one you can trust to set the agendas of history. This, this theme of Babylon runs all the way through the Bible. And part of the scary part of this desire to seize or grasp the power to shape history, to be in control, part of what comes out of it is this, this sense of by any means necessary. In Babylon, the ends always justify the means. I'll give you peace. Now, I might have to kill a whole lot of people to give, but I'll give you peace. The end's always, by any means necessary, in Babylon. It's part of what's different about the kingdom of God. Peter writes like this, he talks like this, because whenever a people are bound together in loyalty to a story that includes something as strange as the Sermon on the Mount, and again, if you haven't read it, read it, Matthew 5 through 7. If you come together around something like the Sermon on the Mount, it's going to put you at odds with the world. Or what we've been calling modern-day Babylon. I was going back through some old notes, and I I was reminded of this definition as we talk about modern-day Babylon or worldliness. 
Worldliness is whatever any culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. That's why you should feel like an exile in modern-day Babylon. Because modern-day Babylon wants you to believe that sin is normal and righteousness is strange. And you, no, 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 you got it backwards. This isn't my true home because righteousness is normal. And sin is strange. Sin is deviation from God's good design. We are exiles in modern-day Babylon, so instead of the ethics of pride and greed and power, now we live according to the new ethics of the kingdom of God, what we find in the Sermon on the Mount and other places. The ethics we've been talking about of courage and patience and humility and mercy and forgiveness and compassion and peace. And then Paul would say, over all those things you put on love. Love is what binds it all together. And in the kingdom of God, this is what's different than Babylon. In the kingdom of God, the means are the ends. The ends don't justify the means. The the, the means are the ends. Or, Or maybe if I say it this way, how you get there is as important as where you're going. If you compromise the character of Jesus to obtain something, you've already compromised too much. That's so much of what, that's what, the video, that's what we watch. That's what Peter's writing about. Keep your eyes locked on Jesus. So I want to get a little bit into Peter's story, and, and I'll connect the dots a little bit uh, to the gospel writers. Uh, this Mark that is referenced, sometimes he's known as John Mark. He pops up all over the Bible. If you don't know much about him, you could pick up your Bible later and read, start in Acts 2. You'll get to meet Mark. But church history, if you read guys like Eusebius or Papias, church history tells us that Mark recorded Peter's gospel. So Mark's the shortest gospel. Matthew and Luke do a bit more sometimes. Why do we have Mark? Well, Mark was the gospel written for the church of Rome. I think that's why we have it. It's Rome's gospel. And church history tells us Peter spoke it, like it's his story, and Mark wrote it down. And modern scholarship would say, well... It's very believable because there's nobody in the first century church who would have written Mark's gospel the way it's written apart from Peter. Because if you haven't read the gospels for a while, Peter looks like an absolute fool in Mark's gospel. It's just Peter failure after Peter failure. And that's why nobody would have written that down except Peter himself. And we're going to get it. Why would Peter be so vulnerable about his failures? What's going on with Peter? Let's, let's get into that. So, We'll be in Luke chapter 22. If you want to turn there, you can follow along. In verse 14, you get the Lord's Supper. In verse 24, we find out the disciples, I mean, right after the Lord's Supper, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? And then we pick up in verse 31, Jesus speaking, Simon, Simon. This is why I called my message from Simon to Cephas, to Peter, to the rock. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan, the Satan, Hasatan, the accuser, the adversary, demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. He wants to see what you're made of. He wants to test you. That's what happens. I don't know if you've experienced any pressure in the last two years. But when pressure is applied, what's really there comes out. Satan wants to apply some pressure. He wants to see what's really inside. And notice Jesus. Jesus is the greatest disciple. He's alive. He'll teach you his ways if you turn to him. 
He's discipling Peter. He's the greatest disciple ever. I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And notice the subtlety here. I've prayed. I know you're going to be tested. I've prayed that your faith won't fail. And then notice, he says nothing. He's gracious. He's patient. And when you've turned again, basically, I know you're going to fail. And after you've failed, when you've turned again, strengthen your brother, strengthen your sister, strengthen the church. Peter says, "Uh, Lord, uh, it's fresh on my mind, but uh, we, you know, the 12, we were just chatting and i'm i mean we're arguing but i know i'm the greatest right <laughs> i mean you know that i'm the one who's never going to walk away or leave you i mean you name me peter of all of these i mean they're the sons of thunder i'm peter i'm the rock you know i'm the greatest and you know lord that i'm ready verse 20 33 you know i'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death that's why i read from luke's gospel i, I like this part of the story You know I'm ready to go with you to both prison and to death. This is one of those moments. This happens on the discipleship journey. But Jesus, this is where Jesus knows Peter better than Peter knows himself. I know you think that, Peter. And to a degree, you're right, as we'll see as we keep going. But the truth is, Peter, when when the the rooster will not crow this day until, verse 34, until you deny three times that you even know me. I can only imagine what's going on in Peter's mind as Jesus says that. You keep reading. Uh, Jesus is going to go to the Mount of Olives. He's going to pray. There's a contrast. Jesus will pray and Peter will sleep. And then the temple guard is going to come to arrest Jesus. And if, you can read it on your own later, but beginning in verse 47. But, but Peter's going to actually live up to his word. He's going to pull out a sword to fight. And he's going to hack off the ear of one of the temple guards, one of the the servants of the priest. Peter, it turns out, is ready to go to prison and die. Turns out, on his terms. Because you don't pull a sword on the temple guard unless you're ready to go to prison and die. Peter pulls it out. And I just, this is one of those stories that I just love to try to inhabit in my imagination. What would it have been like? To see Peter go all full like ninja sword man and Jesus be like, "Uh uh-uh. Peter, that's how every other Babylon has come. That's what Babylon does. But that is not how my kingdom comes. And Peter heals the man and puts his, I mean, it's crazy. You don't think Peter just learned something about the kingdom of God? Peter's trying to control things, and his way of controlling things is by the sword. Peter is willing to go by the sword, but not by the cross. And he's a bit confused and disillusioned when Jesus says, no, the kingdom doesn't come by the sword, it comes by the cross. It comes with suffering. I don't know if you hear that echo from his letter. We'll go back to his letter. But then you pick up in verse 54, and again, I just think this is honest. If, uh, if you've ever had a disillusioning moment where you've been so schooled and scripted by Babylon, and then you come face to face with the kingdom of God, and it's different because you've never seen this anywhere else before. And Peter gets a little bit like disillusioned. Verse 54, they seize Jesus, they lead him away, they bring him into the high priest's house, and Peter has now backed off a little. He's following Jesus at a distance. He's got to kind of reorient himself. 
and he's around a fire, and people are chatting, and, and again, three times he is denying Jesus. I don't, I don't know the man. I don't know who you're talking about. Verse 60, while he was still speaking there, the rooster crows. And somewhere, Peter's positioned where, where he actually can make eye contact with Jesus from a distance. And Jesus turns, and, and they see each other. And Peter remembers what, what Jesus said before the cruiser crows today. You will deny me three times. Verse 62, and he went out. And it says he wept bitterly. If you know the story of Peter, you'll know that his need for growth often comes out in the form of wanting to control everyone and everything around him. I mean, it's, for him, the sword represents control. I mean, even when Peter makes the great, it's kind of the turning point in the Gospel of Mark, it's the, Peter makes the great confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, yes, you're Peter. You, you've got it. And now that you know that, you need to know that I'm going to go and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And Peter says, not on my watch. We're winning this thing, Jesus. We're not losing. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Stop trying to control everything, Peter. It might not, Peter's, Peter's not, you understand, Peter is not yet willing to follow Jesus in the Jesus way. He wants to follow Jesus in the way he wants to do things. And he wants to tell Jesus how to do it, which is probably the essence of pride what Peter wants. He's willing to take up the sword. He's unwilling to take up the cross. Again, Peter wrongly assumed that what Jesus was building was like the other great Babylons that have come before. All the disciples assume this, but the kingdom of God never comes that way. It's not like the other kingdoms. In the world of empire, in the world of modern-day Babylon, the proud and the strong climb to the top, and they seize greatness, don't they? But Jesus has already tried to tell his disciples, it won't be like that among you. And you could say it this way, because we're entering into an upside-down kingdom, Peter is on his way down to becoming an apostle. Because in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. Peter is broken, and if you're tracking, he's unlearning a whole lot of stuff he learned in Babylon. He's unlearning a whole lot of stuff about how the kingdom of God is going to come. And Peter begins to suspect, he's just been arguing vehemently that he's the greatest, and now, now he goes out and weeps bitterly. He's beginning to suspect, maybe I'm not the greatest. In fact, maybe I'm the least of all. What does Paul say? I'm the worst of all sinners. The world has told Peter the great ones are the ones who lead, but Jesus seems to be saying that his church is going to be led by those who are broken, those who weep and allow God to put them back together in a new way. Peter is going to lead the church, read Acts 1 to 10, but it's not going to be led by someone who's great. It's going to be led by someone who's been broken and reassembled by God. I've told you before that we are not aiming at easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity, so I know you don't like hearing this, but this is the way it is. If you are ever going to arrive at the place where God can use you, you are going to weep bitterly like Peter. Tears were Peter's breakthrough. 
I know you don't want to envision a breakthrough like that. It's much more fun if the, the music's playing and, and there's just joy and laughter. But each one of us must be exposed as the weak sinners that we are and fall to our knees and see who we really are apart from Christ and see how selfish we really are. And if you never have more than one of those breakthroughs, because there's a whole lot of the old self that needs to die, you're just going to stay where you are. And the, and, and the life that Jesus wants to give you, will never, you'll never be able to receive it because you'll just be so focused on yourself and controlling everything and setting things according to your agenda. So there's a little bit of Babylon in all of us. And it, turns about, it turns out that worldliness is a hard habit for many of us to break. Our breakthrough often comes through tears. They're necessary to soften our soul. Leaders need to weep because it gives us a solidarity with others who have weeped. And God is using Peter's greatest failure as the breakthrough to get beyond his pride. What did Jesus say to Peter in Luke 22? He said, I'll pray for you. I'm praying for you, Peter. And after you fail, because I know you're going to fail, when you turn back, strengthen. Strengthen your brothers and sisters. Strengthen the church. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, how, Peter, how do you think you can strengthen anyone who has fallen until you've fallen? <laughs> Jesus cannot entrust his church to the care of those who do not know what it is to weep, who do not know what it is to be broken over their own sin, to know how selfish we really are, how prideful we really are. Until you see that, you can't lead in his church. Peter is undone so he can be remade. Before you can be remade, you have to be undone. We'll come back to that at the end. But I want you to see here that the tears are real, but they're temporary. The transformation is eternal. And a few tears spilled over your brokenness, believe me, they're worth it for a lifetime of lavish love and mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. We all have tears. They're part of the journey. Peter is restored. If you know the story, you can read it in Gospel of John. If you don't, at the end, Jesus is kind of going to recreate. He's such a brilliant, creative. He's the greatest teacher ever. Jesus is amazing. And he's going to kind of recreate the scene, and he's going to have a fire. Peter denied him at a fire. He's going to have a fire. And three times, he's, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Because he denied him three times. And Jesus is going to restore. His grace is sufficient. He'll restore Peter. And Peter will never be the same. That's why... What he writes in 1 Peter is not something he read somewhere else. He's lived this. He's experienced. He knows who he is in Christ, and so he's not afraid of a little suffering. Because he knows how great the love and power of God is. So let's go to 1 Peter again. 1 Peter chapter 2. There's a few passages. Oh, there's a bunch I wanted to do, but we're just going to do two. And I'm trying to help you see that this flows right out of the life of Peter. This Real stuff to him. Chapter 2, verse 21, for to, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that we're meant to imitate. We're actually meant to do and say what Jesus did and said. I mean, we're, we follow him. We do what he said. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Now Jesus is unique. He's fully God and fully man. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
But that makes it even more amazing because he's truly innocent when you and I aren't. But Jesus, what does verse 23 say? When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten. What did Jesus do? He continued entrusting himself to the Father who judges justly. He himself, I think this is really important, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin so sin could end and not have its stranglehold over us anymore. And then we could live to righteousness. And then he says this, by his wounds you've been healed. By his wounds, you've been healed. So let's talk a little bit about this. Peter is meditating on how Jesus died. And part of, I think, what he's saying to us is that the only way to avoid the endlessly seductive temptation of modern-day Babylon is to keep focusing on the cross. Keep focusing on the beauty of the cruciforms, co-suffering love. Modern-day Babylon is really seductive brilliant and tempting. And you and I, that's why we keep coming back every Sunday. That's why we wake up every morning and we remind ourselves throughout the day of the cross of Jesus Christ. We keep our eyes on Jesus and we remind ourselves because modern day Babylon says, oh, do this, do this, this is how the kingdom comes. And we, no, we look at the cross and we say, that's how the kingdom comes. And when we get confused, we look at the cross. How do, oh yeah, that's the only way. The cro- that's how the kingdom comes. And we follow. That's how we live. And as he, as he talks, I love this, by his wounds, you and I are healed. It makes you think of Jesus as the great physician, as the great doctor. The Bible, because sin is complex, the Bible will talk about sin with many different metaphors. Sin's a big deal in the Bible. But one of the metaphors is it's like a disease. It's like this contagious disease. You know, we've been in this pandemic. It's like a virus. And it spreads from person to person. And when you sin, it does damage to your body. It makes you sicker. But then it also does damage to the people that you're sinning against. And that virus goes from person to person. And it mutates and it spreads. But what happens? What what does Peter say when it gets into the blood of Jesus? It dies. Do you understand? He says, he bore our sins in his body. This virus of sin that's retaliating and just, I've been hurt, so I'm going to hurt you. I mean, it's kind of this demonic logic that's kind of flowing through our world today. I've been hurt, so I'm going to hurt you back and I'm going to hurt other people. But, but Peter says, no, 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 look at Jesus. That virus, it gets in his blood, it's destroyed. It's taken to the grave. All the blame, all the guilt, all the rage, all the injustice, gone, left for dead. And Jesus brings new life. I hope you hear that as good news. <laughs> This is good news. Good Friday matters. The virus of sin dies in the body and blood of Jesus. And Jesus comes back. And what does the resurrected Jesus say? He says, peace be with you. Notice he doesn't say, anybody know where Caiaphas is at? I got some words for him. Notice he doesn't say, Pilate better have extra guards when he rocks down the street. Jesus comes back and he says, as the Father has sent me, I send you. Now go forgive. Why wouldn't you forgive? I've forgotten you. And that's how sin ends. That's how sin dies. Because it's been forgiven by the love and mercy of God. (laughs) Now I know, I know that each one of us in here has been wounded. Some of us are more aware of it than others. 
And I've been thinking, I mean, I talk about this in our discipleship pathway, but I think we all need to have more and more rooster crowing moments. We need to. We need to be a self-aware people who are honest about our own arrogance and our own pride and our own limitations, and it's okay. Tears are temporary. The transformation is eternal. We need to have more and more moments where we weep bitterly over our own sin. We need to. It's really important. I know. And I know you've been wounded by other people. And I know it hasn't been evenly distributed. Some of you have been wounded even more. I mean, it's just... But, but wherever you're at this morning, what I want you to hear is that the wounds of Jesus are healing. That Jesus' wounds, when he comes back and talks to Thomas after the resurrection, they're still there, and somehow they're healing. I mean, just take your wounds into the presence of Jesus and let him heal you. One of the things that I've been learning, I realized when I gave my life to Jesus, I knew that grace was breaking in, and I was experiencing new life, supernatural forgiveness in life in Jesus. And I knew that my future was going to be changed. I was on a new trajectory because of grace, because of what God was going to do. But what I've been learning recently, and this is profound, is that God is not bound by time. So grace moves forward, but it also somehow, I like to say this, I confess more than I can explain, but grace can reach into your past and it can heal you. Some of you have wounds that have been there for 20 or 30 years. Maybe that's why you're at church this morning. I want you to hear this. Grace will reach into your past and heal those wounds so you can be free. Some of you have some addictions that have been holding you down because of wounds that you've experienced. The grace of God wants to give you new life and set you free. And some of you are here just exploring God. How do you begin this amazing adventure of supernatural healing? Well, you begin by confessing Jesus. He's he's the true Lord. He's your only king. He's the only one who can save you from yourself, save you from your sin. And he's inviting you. You just put your faith in Jesus. That's where it all begins. All right, we're almost done. One more passage. I think this is an appropriate way to wrap up the series. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, there's that word humility, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, are we talking about a weak God? No, it's the mighty hand of God. This is the God who holds all power. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Notice, that means, that's a big part of this. You are not exalting yourself. You are faithful, you are humble, and when it's time to be vindicated, God will vindicate you. Let him exalt you. Verse 7, I know this is a sermon for another day, but I know you want to hear this one. (laughs) Because living in Babylon causes anxiety. Peter says, cast all your anxieties on Jesus. I mean, if you're feeling that, just cast them on Jesus. Throw them at the cross. And he'll, and he'll, he'll, he'll carry it for you because Peter says he cares for you. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, Hasatan, the, the Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't you just hear Peter wanting to say to you, the devil's going to come and sift you because he wants to see what you're made of under pressure. Be sober-minded, be on the alert, and keep your, keep your eyes, keep your mind on Jesus on the cross, and you'll be okay. The devil's on the prowl. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of, listen to this, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter's like, and me too. 
That's my story too. I failed too. I gave in to Satan too. But the mercy of God is amazing. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. Who? The God of all grace. That's how Peter calls him. Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I think 1 Peter 5, verse 10 is Peter's version of Romans 8, 28. That God is working all good in your life. God promises that your suffering will ultimately be redeemed in salvation. Your suffering will not be pointless. Suffering may come to you pointlessly, but Jesus promises that he will not allow it to remain pointless. He will redeem the suffering by using it in beautiful and unimaginable ways in your life. And I heard another pastor say this before, and it's just stuck with me. He said, I don't know if you can accept this. I don't even know if I can accept it, but I wonder. I wonder if in the age to come, we may say nothing bad has ever happened to me. Or maybe that's too much, so maybe you'll just say a lot of bad happened to me, but when I add it all up, it all ends up as something good because God is working all things for good. He's working to confirm you and restore you and strengthen you. This is God of all grace. And Jesus is the artist who creates beauty out of ugly. I, I like that you and I can make you and I can make good things out of good things. And, he, and I'm not the most artistic, but, but I can make beautiful things out of beautiful things. But what's unique about Jesus is he can make beauty out of ugly. And he can make good out of bad. That is, he can redeem your sin and your mistakes and your failures because that's what the God of all grace does. And you get to the point maybe in the age to come when you'll look back and you'll know the hard times you walked through, but you'll look at the story of your whole life and you'll look at Jesus with awe. I don't know how you did this, but I wouldn't change a thing, God. I know that sounds bold to say today, but the day may come when you look back at your life and you say, I wouldn't change a thing because, because of the way you comforted me and put me back together. I've got a final illustration here to end with. I was reading in a book by uh, Makoto Fujimura called Art and Faith. It's a good book. He talks, he's got a chapter on kintsuki pottery. Have you heard of kintsuki pottery? They take broken pots like this and put them back together with gold. <laughs> What a picture. Something plain and broken that is now more beautiful because it's been broken. Do you understand? There's another picture. You and I are all broken. None of us get through life without brokenness, but Jesus is a master at kintsuki pottery. (laughs) And you might say, well, where does the gold come from? Well, the artist provides it. It's called grace. You might say, well, my life is more broken than most. I'd say, well, you'll get more gold. You're going to be okay. Every crack, every place of brokenness, the God of all grace will bind it together with the gold of his grace. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, well, let's just say, Holy Spirit, I think you're here. And so we want to praise you right now. Uh, and we want to ask you to continue moving. I, I, I don't know that I want to 
try to frame what you need to do. We don't want to tell you what to do. That's a mistake. So I think what we want to do is invite you. We've got wounds. We've got some healing that needs to be done. We probably have some sin we need to confess. We're all at a different place. There's no one size fits all here. Holy Spirit, you know what we need. We need you. We're going to sing a song here that I really do believe is going to give us an opportunity to meet with you. So what we say is we're ready. And do with us as you choose, Jesus. We trust you. Amen.